You're listening to audio from Anchor Bible Church in Centerpoint, Iowa. If you'd like to find out more about our ministry, please visit www.anchorbibleia.org. Good morning, Anchor Bible Church. We uh, are going to remain Anchor Bible Church, by the way. I had a couple folks ask me that after the vote this week. We will continue to be Anchor Bible Church now and moving forward. I'm getting a little echo up here, Chris. Just want to let you know as we get started that we are going to next week be jumping into our summer sermon series on the book of James. So I would encourage you to take a preparatory reading of the book of James, maybe watch the Bible Project video on it sometime this week as you prepare your heart for our summer sermon series. And today's sermon is going to be titled, Worshiping in the Dark. Because as I was looking over the book of James myself to prepare for both the summer sermon series, and we're also studying that book on Sunday nights with our high school students, I came across this one particular verse in the book of James that kind of stuck out to me as odd. It's from James chapter 5, verse 11, and it says this, As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, if you know the ending of Job's story, if you're familiar with that story in Scripture, you can surely agree with the notion that Job's life is a reflection of compassion and mercy and perseverance. But, if in the midst of the story of Job, you put yourself in his shoes, or those of any of the other characters in the story, really, let's just say it's not the kind of thing you'd crochet on a pillow. If you aren't familiar with the beginning, the early chapters of the book of Job, we're told that this man Job has ten kids, he's massively wealthy, he has thousands of farm animals, all kinds of land, and he's incredibly faithful to God. And the scene shifts, and in heaven the angels are presenting themselves to God, and Satan, the adversary, the fallen angel, shows up, and God says to Satan, hey man, what have you been up to? My paraphrase. And Satan says, you know, just chilling, causing problems on earth, going back and forth across the surface of the land, and God kind of seems like he's gloating to Satan. He says, have you seen my boy Job? You've seen how faithful he is to me. There's no one as faithful to me as my guy Job. And there's nothing that you could possibly do to have your evil influence on him. And Satan says, of course he's faithful to you, God, because you've blessed him with more than any man could ever hope to have on their own. You let me take that away and I promise that Job is cursing your name. And so what does God do? He says, all right, Satan, give it your best shot, bro. But just know that you're not allowed to have his life. You're not allowed to kill him. And what's interesting about that is God is giving Satan permission, but there's still parameters. 
There's still guidelines on what God is allowing Satan to do, which is something that we'll come back to later. And very quickly, Job loses everything except for his wife. His children die. His wealth is gone. His wife is telling him, why don't you just give up and die? And what does Job do at the end of chapter 1? This is verses 20 and 21 of Job 1. At this... Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And so Satan goes back to God, and you have to wonder if God gloats a little bit. Like, hey, Satan, you hear that? You hear Job down there singing to me? All my life you have been faithful. That's why I don't sing up here on Sundays. (laughs) And so then the devil gets permission from God to go after Job again. And still, Job refuses to curse God's name and instead he praises him. And I was, as I was reading through James and then Job and then the book of Psalms, I was rocked this week by the reality that God can be so, so good, as we sang about moments ago. And He can be so gracious and faithful to us. And also, life can suck sometimes. It's just difficult. There's pain and struggle and heartbreak and we lose people and it hurts and how amazing is it that over and over again in this word that God has given us to tell us who he is to testify to his relationship about us his very word from his mouth that has been given unto us that we might know him better In that word, we get to see examples over and over again of people who, without contradicting themselves, can say things like, man, this is the hardest thing I've ever been through, and at the same time, God has been so, so good to me, and not contradict themselves. We see this over and over again in Scripture. This idea that we can hold in one hand some incredibly intense negative feelings. And without losing any bit of faith, say, but God has been so good to me. And so we see this over and over again in Scripture. One of my favorite examples is found in the six short verses of Psalm 13. This is Psalm 13 from King David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Notice that in six short verses, David moves from 
How long are you going to forget about me, God? Two, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he's been good to me. And now if that isn't enough, the progression of the three stanzas of this song, of this poem, are themselves representative of this gradual decline in David's heart from intense negative feelings to peace through God in prayer. Don't run from God when you're upset with Him. Move towards Him even when your prayer, like David, is God, where the heck are you at? David moves from abject despair in the first stanza to a calm and discerning request for guidance and wisdom from God in the second stanza to a resolution by the end to praise God for his faithfulness. It's like you can feel David's temperature come down as the psalm progresses. It's like the rippling waves of a pond after you throw a rock in it. The first two verses, right after the rock hits the water, tumultuous, choppy, and then the next two verses, the ripples get longer and start to make their way across the surface of the water. And finally, by the last two verses of Psalm 13, you see David's heart, his disposition, return to quiet waters, to stillness and calm. I want to place before you today three steps to worshiping God and finding peace in Him despite dark and difficult circumstances. They are certainly not the only three possible steps to worshiping God in trouble, but they're the ones that we see specifically in Psalm 13. Number one is this, worship through the dark by laying your lamentations at the feet of God. Worship through the dark by laying your lamentations at the feet of God. Verses 1 and 2. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I don't think this needs to be said to the group of people here gathered today. But just in case, there will be some dark times even when you're following Jesus. There's no promise that just because you accept Christ, everything is going to be great for you. In fact, the opposite is often true because we have an enemy who wants to attack people, especially people who are young in their faith, before they can grow into warriors for God's kingdom. And so part of the reason that I've come out of the gate so fiery this morning, making bad jokes and yelling at you, is because I've been convicted recently that as a body of Christ, we have a duty not to just show up here on Sundays, but actually to cause trouble in Satan's camp. To, to be people who make trouble for the enemy. And so the first way we do that is by laying our laments at God's feet. Not hide our feelings and our sorrows or bury them down so deep that we think we'll never have to worry about them. Specifically you Midwestern men. And listen, I'm right in that group, okay? What do we do with bad feelings? We take other bad feelings and we bury them down on top until nothing can be found. But that's not the example that's set for us in Scripture. David shows us that God cares about the cries of his people. 
He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. And so just because he's listening to your struggles in any one given moment doesn't mean he's any less capable of listening to someone else's struggles in the same moment because there's no limit to him. So stop praying like you're being charged by the minute. For anyone in the room younger than me, we used to have a limit to how long we could talk on the phone in any given month, and then you get charged a bunch of extra money if you went over. That was called having minutes, McKenna. <laughs> Sorry, talking on the phone is something we used to do before texting was an efficient form of communication because there were only 12 buttons on the phone, and so some of the letters had to share. So David is communicating this reality that we all feel at one time or another. When he asks, God, how long will you hide your face from me? It's not because David was actually used to seeing God's literal face. It's an expression that means, how long are you going to hide from me? How long do I have to feel like I'm abandoned and alone? When will you come to meet with me again, oh God? How long do I have to experience this spiritual dryness? And I think we just don't know how to pray like that anymore, or at least most of us don't. Could you imagine if you were at your Bible study on Monday night or Tuesday night or whenever Sunday night you get together for your Bible study and some new guy in the group volunteers to pray out or to pray right before you start eating and everyone in the circle kind of gathers around, maybe you're holding hands, you bow your heads and, and he just starts like, how long, oh Lord, will you forget about me forever? Bless this food to our bodies, amen. If you're the small group leader, you're probably pulling him aside afterward and saying, listen, man, we need to talk after group tonight before you get to pray again. But all throughout the Bible, we see faithful people drawing near to God, presenting their fears and their sorrows to him. And let's be honest, it's not like he doesn't know that already. So why do we do it? There's a pastor from Indianapolis named Mark Vorgrup, he wrote an excellent short list of reasons for why we should lament. Why should we pray these negative emotions in prayers to God? For Crossway Christian Publishing, he wrote an article for them back in 2019. And I'm just going to read for you his list of six reasons here. Number one, it's a language of loss. Lament is the historic prayer language for hurting Christians. It provides a biblical vocabulary and a model for talking to God about our pain or helping those who are walking through suffering. It gives us the words we need. Number two, it's a solution for silence. Too many Christians either are afraid or refuse to talk about their struggle, whether it's for fear, whether it's for shame, anxiety, concern for being irreverent, pain can give rise to deadly prayerlessness. And lament cracks open the door to talk to God again, even if it's messy. Number three, lament is a category for complaints. Lament helps us to see that complaining to God is not necessarily sinful. Number four, lamenting gives framework to our feelings. Number five, it's a process for our pain. And number six, lamenting is a way to worship. Getting through the darkness, brothers and sisters, does not happen by bottling it up. 
Getting through the darkness comes when we get at the feet of God and weep before a loving and caring Father because He can handle it, even when you can't. Number two, for worshiping through the dark. We worship through the dark by asking for God's perspective and will for our lives. David says in verses 3 and 4, Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. One scholar says of David's state of mind in Psalm 13, His thought is dominated by one anxiety only the anxiety that he might waver in his faith and lose confidence in God and so might provide for his adversaries, his enemies, the opportunity of gaining an easy victory. David is fearful that his current lack of faith in God is going to lead to a victory for those who seek to do harm to him. So as David prays, he asks specifically for God to first remove from him the feeling of abandonment. And then as we move into the second stanza, he says, Look on me and answer, Lord my God. And then David asks for God to change his perspective, to give light, the light of God to his eyes that he might have life. Not just life as in not dying, as in avoiding death, but also as in actually living existing without the crippling fear and anxiety that has come to dominate his life. David doesn't want to just be alive. David wants to live. And he's asking God to provide. Sometimes we all need to be reminded that to get through the deepest darkness is to be reminded that nothing is wasted with God. Sometimes all we need to get through the deepest darkness is to be reminded that nothing is wasted with God. There is no pain that you've ever experienced that God won't use for your ultimate good and for his glory. And we don't always get to see that. You very well might not know how all of the brokenness you've experienced in your life is being used for your good until you stand beside your Savior in glory. But you can take heart in knowing that there is nothing outside the control of God, not even the enemy. And don't try to tell me that there's no enemy, because there is. Satan is real, and the longer you convince yourself that he's not, he'll have some kind of power over you. It's, it's hard enough combating the sins of our heart without being able to see the enemy who is trying to pull at those strings. And so the longer we convince ourselves that he's not real, the more access to the strings we've given him. Sometimes you have to wonder if David had ever heard the story of Job. Certainly he didn't have the book of James to explain it for him. And he didn't get to live in the area that we live in with the knowledge of the gospel that we have that tells us that through Christ, the enemy has been made God's footstool and the only things that he can do are the things that God lets him do. Does that make you uncomfortable that the only things that Satan can do are the things that God lets him do? I'm not pretending to understand why it's that way, but look at the text Clearly, God is the one who is in control, and it's not even close. 
There's a pastor from Dallas named Matt Chandler who I enjoy and Andrew enjoys learning from. And he once said in a sermon a a number of years ago, how many times in the Gospels do you see demons arguing with Jesus? Never. They don't even put up a fight. Every time a demon is faced with the Son of God, it's not pulling up their fists It's like, please don't banish us before the appointed time. Let us go into those pigs. Don't banish us. Don't kill us, Lord. Don't destroy us before it's time. Does that sound like somebody who's putting up a fight to you? No. They have no power over Jesus. And what's the point? The point is that the devil is not some adversary of equal strength or level footing to God. There's not a cosmic boxing match going on in the heavenly realm that we're spectators to, hoping that our God will win. He already did. This isn't the thriller in Manila. Satan is a dog on God's leash. He's got nothing There is no hoping for God to reign supreme. He already does. His all-knowingness, His all-power are the primary acting forces in your life, not Satan. So stop giving Satan more control and influence than he's due. Stop giving them more than what he has earned. Jesus says in Mark 3.27 that the strong man's house is being plundered. That God is winning souls to himself and there's nothing the enemy can do but watch because those souls were never his in the first place. The perspective of the enemy is that you are destined for destruction at the hands of a God who doesn't care about you, who has left you to death and darkness and despair in a broken, fallen world. But when you are given the light of God onto your eyes, the eyes of the Lord are true and show us that we are loved and we are held up by a God who is far more powerful than anything Satan could ever hope to be. You are never outside of his sovereign protection and control. So who are you listening to? Through whose eyes are you going to see your darkness? The eyes that have been condemned to darkness already or the eyes of the one who created light itself? And finally, we worship through the dark by expressing faith despite our feelings. Anyone not have the best week ever? I didn't. Pastor Andrew did not either, apparently. And listen, Christians, I'm going to say something that's going to absolutely blow your minds. Ready? That's okay. It's okay. It doesn't make you any less faithful or God any less good to say, listen, my week wasn't good. And if you think it does, then your problem's not with me, and it's not with Pastor Andrew. Your problem is with King David and Jeremiah and King Solomon and Paul and, oh yeah, Jesus himself, who expressed displeasure at various points in Scripture. Part of our identity as God's people stretches all the way back into the history of Israel, an inheritance that's continued through the early church and into today, and it's this. We're strugglers. 
We're foreigners in a broken world that we know is not our home. We're in this unique position to see the brokenness of the world for what it is. Plaguing God's good creation, which actually inspires within us even more sorrow than non-believers because we know this isn't how things are supposed to be. And yet at the same time, we have far more hope because we know that despite all of our current struggles, this isn't all there is. Jesus is coming back. His life, death, and resurrection have given such meaning to our struggles that in the midst of them, we can rejoice because we trust in a God who is good. It's what allowed men like Job and David to say, all around me there is struggle and brokenness and people are telling me to just give up and wallow in despair and self-pity and to curse God and yet I won't because I know my God is faithful. He was good to me before I knew him. He was good to me when I was saved and he continues to be good to me even now. The verb forms in verses 5 and 6 of this text actually communicate to us the sense that the answer from the Lord that David desires has not yet been given to him. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. It's the picture of the reality of your life and mine that having faith sometimes means holding in one hand your trust in God and in the other hand the very real negative emotions that come with living in a fallen and broken world. And sometimes we just have to be okay with that. One scholar writes, the actual song of praise that David looks forward to with anticipation would burst forth once deliverance had been accomplished. But the knowledge that deliverance was coming created an anticipatory calm and sense of confidence. It's David's way of saying, even when I can't see it yet, I find peace in the God who's already won. Oftentimes we don't get to see what God is doing in the moment, and that's okay because, we have been, because he has been faithful to us before, and the Bible says, and Angie said this morning, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he's brought me through everything I've faced until now, I have no reason to fear because, in fact, the only evidence that I have is evidence of God's goodness and his provision, In a way that I think beautifully illustrates the complexity of human emotion, David can say both in the same song, How long, O Lord, will you abandon me and hide your face from me? And I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. We have to learn how to be okay with that. And can I be real for a second, church? I feel like you guys don't like it when I talk like that. Can I tell you the truth for a second, church? Sometimes I hate not being able to see what God's doing. I felt like Job. I felt like David, and I know you have too. But it's when I get to look back at what God's done that I'm able to say, yet, Lord, I will praise you. I think I've only ever told this story once before, and it was at an FCA event. 
But my freshman year of college, I was in a bad car accident. I was going to put a picture on the screen, but I forgot. It was bad. The accident was both my third concussion in three years and one of the first times I was truly confronted with my own mortality. I was already in a place at college where I was spiritually dry and I was struggling. And this was like fuel to Satan's fire that felt like it was burning my life down around me. And I was in a fraternity. I know. Don't email me. And that June... I had to go to our fraternity's national conference in Louisville, Kentucky to vote on things like bylaws and that kind of stuff and and listen to old men talk to young men about how bad they are for getting drunk all the time and that kind of thing. And I was so lost and I was so hopeless and I was in so much pain both physically and emotionally that I went over to the 15th story of my hotel room window, or I went over to the window of my 15th story hotel room, and I started pulling together items that I thought would be able to break it. And it was at that moment that I was staring down at the streets of downtown Louisville from 15 stories up that God reminded me of his faithfulness. And so I went through the next day of the conference, and I got on a plane home, and As soon as I got home, I called my school and told them I'd be transferring. And I'll let you in on a little secret. The pain didn't get any easier when I switched schools. The depression didn't just magically disappear. But I knew that God was faithful. And I knew that if I just kept seeking his face, he would show up because he'd never not shown up for me before. So Bailey and I praised him even when it meant I was transferring away from her. And we praised him when I hated my first couple weeks at the U of I. And God worked on our hearts that year and we grew in our reliance on him. And I had just reached a place of peace. I was beginning to finally feel like myself again in March of 2020. And I was sitting in the Memorial Union in Iowa City, eating lunch between my classes, when my phone rang and the caller ID said Andrew Happ. And I remember getting off that phone call and standing on the steps of the old Iowa Capitol and praising God for his faithfulness. I had walked through such darkness for the last 14 months. The enemy had been working overtime to try and steal me from my creator. But that devil is a dog on a leash compared to our God. And what he had intended for evil, God had intended for good because it brought Bailey and I here to you. So no matter what you're facing right now, no matter what the enemy is throwing at you, You can trust that those things that the enemy intends for evil against you, the God who is ultimately in control intends them for good. When you and I feel like we're surrounded by darkness, standing in a circle of ever-decreasing light as our world tries to cave in around us, You can be a troublemaker in the kingdom of the enemy with your eyes fixed securely on Jesus as you say, despite all the darkness that surrounds you in this moment, 
I will sing the Lord's praise, for he's been good to me. Let's pray. Lord, you've been good. You've been faithful. You've never not been faithful. On this Pentecost Sunday, we're reminded that you promised that you would send us an advocate. One who would intercede for us even when we didn't know how to pray, Lord. Even when our lamentations were so strong, they're like wordless moans and groans that you hear those things, God, and that you will not abandon your children. God, whether we're in a season of joy or a season of despair, would you remind us that there is no power of the world or the enemy that is greater than you? Would you remind us that there is nothing in our lives that exists outside of your sovereign control? And would you help us to rest in your righteous right hand? Lord Jesus, fill our hearts and our cups as we go out from this place and seek to spread the good news that your son died in our place on that cross and that he has risen to new life that we might raise to life with him. God, would you bless us? Would you send us? And would you remind us of your faithfulness today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.